Welcome to today's edition of the Insights Podcast on the Huddle Network. I'm Don Mills. And I'm David Campbell. David had a really interesting conversation with Paul Bennett. He's a well-known commentator uh, on public education issues, not only in our region, but across Canada. A bit of an expert, I would say, based on his uh, background uh, as a teacher and an administrator and a principal. Um, brings a lot of experience to, to the discussions, written 10 books. Most recent book is on the history of public education in Canada, um, which, you know, takes us to where we are today, which is, uh, you know, uh, a, a very important topic for economic reasons, if nothing else. Uh, we need to have well-educated kids coming out of our education system and prepared, especially for, you know, uh, the post-secondary phase of their education and and for those who don't go the post-secondary route for um, colleges and, and, and trades training. So um, this is a conversation that those interested in, in education will, uh, I think, get a lot out of. Yeah, so there's two sides to that, right? One is sort of the primary economic contribution of education, and I think you and Paul had a good conversation there, but the second side is what's the product? So coming out of the education system uh, are, you know, do we have the skilled and talented people we need to meet labor market demand across Atlantic Canada? But why don't you tell us a little bit about what you learned around the size of the economic contribution of the, of the uh, education sector in our region? Yes. Yeah, so uh, Paul did a, a bunch of uh, new research. I don't think this research has ever been uh, made public. So breaking, late breaking news on the Insights podcast the sector for K to 12 education in our region is worth about $4.3 billion. That's a lot of money and uh, almost all of it stays in this region. So it's an important um, economic impact uh, on, uh, on Atlantic Canada. Um, he also uh, talked about the rising cost of education per student. Uh, currently it's about, $14,000 per year per student. You know, that starts to get close to the cost of a private education, doesn't it, David? And, um, it, you know, uh, I guess we need to expect more for, the, for that uh, level of cost uh, relative to what the private sector is producing. He also mentioned, and I didn't know this number, maybe you did, but there's a little over 240,000 students in the K-12. So, uh, you know, pretty sizable group of uh, students. Uh, but the most important thing <clears throat> he, he mentioned, I think, was employment. Um, in Atlantic Canada, we probably have something north of 25,000 teachers, people in the classroom. But, <clears throat> you know, he gave the example of the Halifax School Board, which has 11,500 people working in the K-12 uh, sector. Of those, only about 4,400 are teachers. And so if that were to be the case across Atlantic Canada, it may not be, but if that were to be the case, then the, the employment for the P-12 is likely somewhere uh, at least north of 50,000 people a year. 
but it also means it's like a it's a bit like an iceberg, right? It's it's a bit invisible. You see the people in the classroom, but for every one person in the classroom, there's at least one other um, uh, working in the education field, and so. Um, I think that that's a very, those were very interesting um, pieces of data that uh, he, he provided. Yeah, I suspect that broader list of employment includes um, uh, school bus drivers and other related right. occupations. But it was kind of shocking when you mentioned that to me, that less than half of total employment in the sector are actual teachers. You've got administrators, you know, you've got janitors, you've got food service workers, whatever. But to, to think about the fact that the teachers are only about half that. But the $14,000 per student, I think that's another sobering fact. And, and again, it comes back to what you said, you know, over a four-year high school education, that's, uh, you know, that's, uh, those are kind of university-level costs for that education. And are we getting high-quality uh, outcomes for that? I mean, one of the concerns, and I know you talked to Paul about it, is this idea of leveling down. In other words, you want uh, 100% of, of graduates to have at least a basic set of skills as opposed to allowing a small number to sort of succeed and soar above the crowd because they have particular uh, skills or, or particular focus. So this is a challenge in public education in general is that, is that the goal is to try and get as many people through the system and not leave anybody behind. But taking that approach sometimes means that some of the people that could have uh, excelled uh, and I put uh, three kids through the public education system here in New Brunswick. And I think f all three of them probably could have done more uh, in their, in their education have been pushed harder, uh, but the system didn't allow them to do that. So I think that's a real concern. I know you and Paul talked about that. Well, he, he you know, he had a, he had a, at least uh, some, recommendation for dealing with uh, with this push for graduation which you know i think atlantic canada canada in general has a high rate of graduation which is the positive side but the quality of those students coming out is the real question mark <clears throat> uh the, the move to a no fail no fail uh regime has uh, has pushed some people through who are not ready for the next phase of their lives clearly and, and you hear university administrators uh, decry the quality coming into universities all the time. But he did suggest that <clears throat> there was a need for an independent assessment body set up to, uh, to ensure that, that, that attainment is being realized for students. And I thought that that was a pretty good idea. Yeah, another topic that's really important, I think, is the, the, the performance issue for teachers and how do you get rid of poor performers in the system? Uh, I think we've mentioned this in the past. Um, not many people lose their jobs because they're not good at it. And when you, if you're a teacher, you're well protected by the union, and you get moved from school to school, but you don't, you don't, you don't lose your job. <clears throat> the problem in any uh, well operating uh, system, as you know, is that uh, employees, no matter where they work, kind of fit in a bell curve. You have the top ten are extraordinary. The Bottom 10 need help and, and improvement, and the bulk are just, you know, average good workers. Well, if you don't address the poor performers for decades, the number of people in the lower category increases. And I, my suspicions are that it's, you know, the, the poor performers in teaching it, it would be a lot greater than 10%, maybe as much as 20%. If you don't 
address the poor performers, either by helping them improve or moving them out of the system. And <clears throat> he said what is needed really is a college of uh, teachers to start to address disciplinary issues, performance issues outside of the union environment and allow administrators the right to hire um, and keep those teachers that are performing. It's an issue that nobody wants to talk about, let's be honest. Uh, but as a parent, you know very well the teachers that were probably not suited to teaching in, in the system that your kids went through, right? Yeah, I think that's right. Although the teachers, and I had, I've had several conversations with them over the years, they would say the problem is in the home. That if you're in a district or a school where, with, with higher affluent parents, the, teach, the kids are going to have great outcomes. But if you're in a situation where you have a mixed base of students, it's not the fault of the teacher if the student comes without food in their stomach and no, right. no focus on homework and so on. So I think there's, I think the general premise around, around teachers that you've put forward is exactly right. But I do think there are some social uh, and health-related determinants there that are possibly dragging down some of the, some of the performance of the education system. You're 100% right. I agree with that. Uh, and and, and the final, finally, we talked about the impact of the pandemic on, uh, on education. And one of the things that's quite clear from uh, Paul's point of view is that there's been a significant learning deficit uh, for not every student. The ones that are well supported at home probably have done well, but a large number, maybe the majority of students have got a learning gap <clears throat> and there's no plan, no discussion to narrow that gap by anybody and, uh, and and that this generation will maybe be a lost generation in terms of the um, education attainment that they have. And they will always kind of be behind no matter what they do in life uh, because there's no plan to uh, uh, narrow that learning gap. And I think that that's, a, that's something that there should be more discussion about, don't you? Absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, if it requires longer school days, and I know the teachers cringe at that, or maybe a few uh, a few more days during the year, maybe not as far as South Korea, but uh, there's got to be some way. In the U.S., they've quantified that gap, and they've, you know, some some studies are showing that it's going to drag the income of uh, a large share of those students down by five or ten percent over the course of a lifetime. So these are huge impacts, and I think administrators and experts should be thinking about how do we, is there any way to rectify that now? And of course, it's hard to talk about it in the current situation, because particularly here in New Brunswick, we've got schools shutting down every other day because of some sort of COVID uh, outbreak. So this is, it's still roiling along here in the region. But I think if Paul is correct, and there's some sort of a fundamental learning gap as a result of COVID-19, I think we should be looking specifically at this generation and trying to find a way to redress that. And just as a personal antidote, I have a grandson that uh, is in grade three. It's pretty clear that uh, his reading skills are not at a grade three level. Um, you know, the only thing that we're able to do is find him a tutor. Now we're able to do that, but not everybody's able to do that. We'll help make up that learning gap for our grandson, obviously, because uh, we have a vested interest in his success. But the problem is, is that there's only a small portion of the population that has the personal resources to do that. So, you know, the, again, get get back to an early point that you made. Those at the, uh, the low end of the economic rung are going to suffer the most. And, and people need to realize that the system needs to step in and do something 
to make that uh, uh, gap less uh, less uh, onerous for for these kids. Anyway, um, that's a, a really good introduction to a very uh, helpful and interesting uh, conversation that we had with Paul Bennett. And here's that conversation. On today's Insights podcast, I'm pleased to be joined by Paul Bennett. Paul is a well-known public education consultant and the director of the Schoolhouse Institute and also an adjunct professor of education at St. Mary's University. He's also authored 10 books, including most recently, The State of the System, A Reality Check on Canada Schools, a book that I recently uh, read and uh, will be referencing during our conversation. Paul, welcome to the podcast. It's good to be with you. Thank you for the invitation to share some of my ideas on education. This is a topic, uh, Paul, that I've been wanting to talk about for a while. It's of great interest to me personally, so I'm glad that you're able to join us. Let's start by getting a little bit about your background and kind of how it's led you to your current work. Well, I've always had a passion for education. It's in my blood. And from the time I was a student until heading schools and becoming a policy analyst and a, an author, I've always devoted a lot of my time to improving public education, whatever I've done. So going back over, say, four decades in three different provinces, I've held virtually every role you can have in education, from classroom teacher to department head, to curriculum chair, to vice principal, to headmaster, to a board member, a chair of a budget committee on a, the fourth largest school board in Ontario. Then I became a policy analyst, uh, a writer, and a commentator. So there's very little I haven't done in education. So when I wrote the book, uh, The State of the System, a reality check on Canada schools, I was actually drawing on that experience going back um, since the late 1980s, my own personal insights and experiences drawn out of the school system. Well, you know, uh, I think uh, you're, you become the go-to person on public education, certainly in our region, and I know that's the case uh, for other parts of the country. I, I want to start in a, on a different uh, sort of spot than you might expect for this kind of discussion. I want to talk about the economic impact of public education in Atlantic Canada in terms of jobs and expenditures. You know, we forget that it's a big part of our economy, and uh, can you give us kind of the, the scope of the importance of the public education system in Atlantic Canada? I'm glad you've asked me that because education is somewhat invisible in the economy. There are lots of reasons for it, but one in particular is it's very siloed and it doesn't show up in economic analyses or even in assessments of its relative importance in the total economy. Let me give you the broad brushstrokes today. And I did some digging. Uh, this is data that's brand new and I wanna share it with your audience. Well, first of all, if you take all the K to 12 education in the region of Atlantic Canada, the total expenditure is $4.3 billion. Um, and that includes Newfoundland and, and uh, Labrador. If it's just the Maritimes, it's $3.5 billion. And here are the expenditures by province in just in the K-12 system. Nova Scotia is now $1.7 billion. New Brunswick, $1.5 billion. Prince Edward Island, $278 million. Newfoundland and Labrador, $848 million. 
Um, Pupil expenditures have grown dramatically too over the last five years in particular. So the average per pupil expenditure across the region is now 14,000 per pupil, uh, and it's been growing significantly. Um, I'd like to give you a bit of a sense of just how dramatic the impact is uh, in terms of its impact in the employment structure too. Um, we all know about the number of students that are being educated uh, in our region. There'd be maybe 240,371, actually the last count. Um, but a little lesser known is the number of people who work for uh, provincial authorities, um, school districts, and so on, and how hard it is to really get a handle on this. So Nova Scotia has 9,674 teachers which is pretty much the same as it was 20 years ago, even though enrollments are less. New Brunswick, 7,788 teachers. Um, Prince Edward Island, 4,000. So a total of 21,462 educators, but that's really underestimating the totals because when I dig deeper and I look at all workers associated with education, I just took one particular board, the Halifax Regional Center for Education, and believe it or not, they employ 11,500 employees. Only 44% of them are actually classroom teachers. Wow. So the impact is much greater. And then, Don, I knew you would like this. So I went to <laughs> the structure of the economy, and I started looking at, I wonder if you were to take education and include it among the top employers, what you'd find. So in Nova Scotia, the Nova Scotia Health Authority has 23,400 employees, and the Department of Education, teachers alone, 9,674. But I, I estimate that in Nova Scotia, there may be 17 or 18,000 people working in the, uh, that's a conservative estimate, because 11,500 work for the Halifax Regional School Board. Top employers in New Brunswick, Horizon Health, then the New Brunswick Department of Education in that order. Actually, more people work for the Department of Education in New Brunswick than work for Vitality, the uh, Francophone network. Irving Oil only employs 2,800 in New Brunswick, and the Education Department uh, employs far more. But it's in PEI where you see it most dramatically. The largest single employer in Prince Edward Island is the school system, 4,000. Um, health PEI is only 3,700. And it dwarfs all other uh, areas of the economy. So my, my question is always, why is education so invisible? And I talk to deputy ministers of education and those involved, and they tell me the same thing, that education is its own silo it is removed from economic development and therefore is never counted in terms of its impact on economic development. But we know from recent elections that spending on education is no longer defined as spending, it's investments because so much of it goes to hiring more and more people and increasing the staff complements in the systems. That's a great uh, overview, uh, something that I'm pretty sure most people will be surprised by. I, I expected it to be high, but 
not that high. So uh, thank you for the late breaking news on that topic. We like to do that on this podcast. It's great. Uh, let's start by looking at the big picture of public education in Canada, the subject of your most recent book. What is your assessment of the current state of public ed- education in Canada, Paul? Well, that's like asking someone who's written an opus to consolidate it down into a precy of uh, 50 <laughs> words or less. So I'll do my best. If you would take my terminology in the book, I would say we're in the advanced stage of the modern bureaucratic education state. Uh, how we got there is what the book is about. It goes back over 100 years, focuses in, intensively on the last 50, and it shows how uh, education became more centralized, more bureaucratic, more top-down, and how um, whatever your role in the system, whether you be a student, a parent, or a teacher, you were further and further removed from where decisions were being made. And that's what the fundamental problem that the system has, and that is the detachment of those who are running the system from those who are actually making the system work on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, uh, your book was extremely well researched about the history of education in our country, and uh, we'll get a little bit more into that um, shortly. Uh, Where do you think Canada ranks internationally in terms of public education? Because, you know, a lot of a lot of information is out there about where the scores are on different tests and stuff like that. But where where would you rank us right now? Well, PISA, as most of your listeners would know, the um, the that's the OECD rankings um, based entirely on PISA is the only reliable guide we have internationally. Most people agree it's the gold standard. So if you take the uh, results on uh, the PISA tests administered every three years since 2000, you could see that Canada plateaued about 2006. We did reasonably well when um, the PISA um, tests were first instituted. We came out of the gate fast and we were in the top 10 in the world. But since 2006, more countries have been admitted to the OECD testing and the Asian countries have taken over and we plateaued since 2006. Contrary to what is out there in the public domain, Finland has tapered off more than Canada and is no longer considered the top uh, educational jurisdiction in the world. It's actually most likely Estonia uh, or Singapore uh, or uh, places in China that have the top ranked education systems. So Canada's plateaued and in two ways it's plateaued. We have fewer students who are achieving the highest levels uh, in, in mathematics and in literacy. They're reading, they're not quite as effective. And uh, we have, um, I, I would say our um, lowest common denominator is much worse than it was. Uh, having said that, we've improved in two areas in relation to other countries. And uh, first of all, I would say the equity gap is less in Canada. That is the top students and the weakest students are closer but the entire band is, is dropped. So that's not exactly an achievement that we should be trumpeting. And I, I would say the second thing is our graduation rates have gone through the ceiling. Um, and you, there's lots of reasons for this, but wherever there's an assessment of the highest graduation rates and the highest percentage that go to universities and colleges will come out on top. But of course, my analysis is it's been made so easy to get those credentials and to move to the next that 
Um, it's no question. Every uh, provincial authority I've studied has made a priority to boost graduation rates. Uh, and what they learn is satisfaction levels among parents, business, and the community rise as soon as you see that everyone is doing better academically. So there's a little bit of an insidiousness to this. And so I don't put too much stock in those rankings, which say that we're leading in post-secondary education. Yeah, uh, that's, uh, you know, in fact, your book talks about the movement towards a no-fail policy. Uh, again, we'll talk about that in a second uh, as probably contributing to that. Uh, what do you see as the most important issues that need to be addressed to improve the quality of public education in Canada? I think we need to face squarely what I've termed the big disconnect, and that is uh, growing numbers of graduates, um, rising attainment levels. That is, that people are getting more diplomas, more certificates than ever before. But there's a widening gap between their achievement levels. We are not good at assessing uh, whether their um, achievement is uh, maintained or attained through genuine achievement or whether it's just rewarding them for um, attending uh, or social promotion. I was surprised when I gave a talk in Prince Edward Island that how strongly held the view was that they wanted to bring an end to social promotion. I was delighted to hear that because we don't hear enough of that in other provinces. Yeah, you know, it's a, it's a topic of concern to me as well. Um, uh, it's just too easy not to learn right now in many cases. Let's turn to the uh, current state of public ed education in Atlantic Canada. Generally speaking, how would you rate public education in the region relative to the rest of the country? Well, uh, it's so hard to find reliable data. So again, I'm going to go to the most recent uh, piece of evidence we have, which is the PCAP 2019 test, which was released this week, uh, which ranked 13-year-olds uh, um, in, in the country. Uh, and uh, it, it basically had all of our provinces at or below the median. Hmm. I will say no more. Uh, right. Consistently, when you rank provinces against one another, Quebec finishes first in math and has for the last 30 years uh, by a long margin. Uh, Quebec is the only jurisdiction in Canada that's competitive globally in mathematics. And when you look at, uh, so I'm, I want to be really clear about this. Um, some provinces have their strengths and others have their weaknesses. But I think it's fair to say that we're just a middling region uh, in Canada. And Canada, keep in mind, is above average in the right. world in, um, in terms of educational performance. Interesting about Quebec. I was educated in Quebec, you probably know, and uh, it might explain my interest in math. Math has always been a <laughs> big topic for me personally. I, I guess, uh, you know, I, if you look at the current uh, province in the region, uh, provinces in the region, are some doing better than others, uh, in your opinion? The most improved province is Prince Edward Island. Uh, for all kinds of reasons. Um, not only is their economy doing better, but their educational system has improved. Started when they brought uh, kindergarten into the public school system rather late. Then they moved to introduce uh, standardized testing and did a reasonably good job in doing that. They came in later to um, standardized testing. So I think they put more emphasis on preparing the students to do well. 
The only caveat and the hole in the system, I would say, is that they've allowed more exemptions. 14% um, of their students are, are designated as have learning challenges, so they're not included in the rankings. So I think their, their scores may be artificially inflated. Another thing that I found absolutely amazing, in our region, um, PEI spends more per, uh, per capita on education than anyone else. I, I found that interesting. Uh, they are now spending a lot more. We've illustrated that they have the most employees, 4,000, which is the biggest employer in PEI. They're also spending the highest percentage per capita on education. Wow. Well, we've talked a lot on this podcast about what uh, what's going on on PEI. That's another interesting element to uh, to some of the success that they're having, obviously. Uh, until recently, and I think you you were pointing this out a lot over a long period of time, there had been a long, slow decline in the number of students due to low population growth and an aging population. In some communities, this is starting to change with increasing immigration and population growth. And PEI is a good example of that. Halifax is a good example of that. Moncton's a good example of that. Uh, nonetheless, the cost of education has uh, risen significantly despite you know, that decline over a long period of time. Can you provide the, our listeners with some numbers uh, to provide uh, contents to the curtain, uh, the current state of public, uh, public education? We're spending a lot per student. In fact, you just said, if I'm not mistaken, uh, over $14,000 in, in the region on public education. That's getting pretty close to a private education cost, is it not? Well, yes, and uh, it's actually more than the average cost of... Uh for a year in, in private education when you consider all of the smaller schools that are not, I would say, in the mainstream. Uh, well, Don, um, one of the biggest stories in education is that education is now, as I indicated, uh, a place where you invest dollars and mm -hmm. you create employment. I've been quoted on this, and I would say that it's basically a job creation sector now. Uh, and I say that because of all kinds of pressures from parents, from special interest groups, from parents who have severe children with severe learning difficulties. Everyone thinks the answer is add more staff. So here's what happened in, uh, you know, per pupil expenditures. Nova Scotia from 2013 to the present went up 30%. In fact, the government of um, Premier Rankin tried to get reelected using that as their principal plank. They spent 30% more on education over their time, and they're going to continue to do that. New Brunswick is up 12.8%, PEI 12.4%. The only province where there's been no increase in education is Newfoundland and Labrador, which is 0.6%. That economy is struggling, but they haven't really expanded their school system. But I would say there's a significant issue here with galloping expenditures in education, unchecked, unmonitored, and no one's holding them accountable. Well, that leads very really nicely into my next question. One of the issues I've had with public education is the seemingly uh, high-level resistance to measurement uh, of outcomes, especially with regard to standardized testing. And the movement uh, to the no-fail policy that you outline in your book has contributed to this situation for sure. What is your opinion about the current metrics used to assess the performance of public education in Canada in general, and more particularly within our region? 
there's a dearth of data, student assessment data everywhere um, in what, what exists can be questioned because those who are implementing it and, and administering it aren't really committed to doing it effectively or to broadening its scope and inclusiveness. But there's a bigger problem, Don, and that is that since COVID-19, it's all ceased. There are no real metrics for measuring anything because all standardized tests, all exams, final exams, have been suspended since um, 2019 20. And um, there was a report just produced this week by last week. Um, there was a, a forum on the Royal Society of Canada looked at COVID and student uh, impacts. And they there's absolutely no data. It has to be construct, constructed from uh, a series and, and data sets that you get from the United States, from UNESCO. There's absolutely no data whatsoever to make the kind of assessments we need to make. So those of us that do education research, I think what they do is they starve us for data and then they get us arguing about generalities. Right. Well, one of the things I think you favor is an independent student assessment agency. Is that not correct? Very much so. More so now than when I wrote the book. What has happened during the COVID-19 pandemic is that all assessment has disappeared. There's no commitment to restarting it because they know full well that the results are going to be abysmal and everyone's going to look bad. And when CMAC, the Council of Ministers of Education, conducts research, they don't do it to make themselves look bad. <laughs> That's the last thing they want. So there is no incentive to reinstitute uh, uh, any assessments. Uh, and you know what's the sad reality, though? We need desperately to have seasonal assessments for diagnostic purposes. We need to be conducting seasonal assessments in September and June. How are we going to remediate and respond to the learning loss if we haven't any idea of how far behind the students are? I really, I really think we need a, an independent testing agency. I believe it should be regional. I think it would be really useful to have a regional testing agency. I would challenge the business community to consider setting up an independent body, which is collecting data on education. And I think they'd find it extremely valuable um, in improving the overall school system. That's a, that's a really interesting idea. Uh, one of the complaints most often directed to the public education system is the difficulty in removing poor performers uh, in, uh, you know, at the teacher level. Often when complaints about teachers arise by parents, teachers are simply reassigned to other schools. Indeed, there are, very, there are few teachers who lose their jobs due to performance issues based on some data that I've seen for the Halifax region in particular. What is your opinion? Uh, uh, what, what, in your opinion, needs to be done to address performance issues with public uh, education? Well, as some of your listeners would know, I was the primary researcher for the CBC Marketplace um, assessment of teacher discipline in Canada. I took a lot of heat, and I've got a lot of scars as a result of taking on mm -hmm. teacher discipline in our country, let alone our region. Um, but a lot of it is clearly misunderstood. I'm a big advocate of uh, 
self-governance and professional standards. I really don't understand why teachers as professionals don't take it as an opportunity to enhance their professional standards, to become a fully self-governing profession, and to get the kind of recognition in many ways they deserve. I think by ducking the College of Teachers and by saying we're not really a profession and by hiding behind union protections, I think they weaken their position in the public domain. I really, really hope that there's business people and union leaders in the, I, that can see the advantage of taking ownership of becoming a full-fledged self-governing profession. Weed out your own garden and you won't have these issues. I don't know why they continue to dodge it, um, hide behind their union contracts, because I think most teachers will benefit from having a self-governing profession where there are fewer questions about whether there are they're weeding out their own ranks. You know, again, another good idea. I mean, most professions do have their own uh, self-regulated uh, associations. I know in our market research industry, we certainly do. And uh, it, 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 it does take a look at people who harm the reputation of our profession. And the same thing is true uh, for teachers. And I guess that's why you're advocating for yeah, a college of, college of teachers, right? Well, it's, it's coming in the back door, though, mm-hmm. but it's, it's for negative reasons. Right. Uh, the ministers of education finally managed to broker that they'd require criminal reference checks for teachers. <laughs> that was all they got after spending five years negotiating this. Right. Now, that was after the Boy Scouts, Girl Guides, and every organization elsewhere had criminal reference checks. So it's hardly an achievement. I, I spoke with... Um, Minister Dominic Cardi, and he was talking about the amendments and he brought in the criminal reference checks. And I said, well, that's really not a win. That's kind of the least of the things that needed to be done. Um, of course, it's, it, what about performance levels? <laughs> yeah. Unless, unless you abuse a child or you sexually uh, assault someone, you're safe, I think. Yeah. I remember uh, taking a look at the data for the, Nova, uh, the Halifax uh, district, and uh, I forget how many teachers they had at that time, but they had probably 4,000 plus or more teachers. And the number of uh, uh, teachers who had been removed was like three or four. And, One a year. You know, it's just, it's <laughs> un- like, like and, and I know from uh, running my own business that, you know, uh, performance operates on a bit of a bell curve, right? You have at the top end, you have a 10% who are superstars. At the bottom end, you have 10% who are deadwood. In the middle, you have you know regular performing people. Well, if you don't get the deadwood out, and that's what private sector try to do is to improve performance, then that deadwood accumulates. It becomes a bigger percentage, not a smaller percentage. So anyway. I'm glad you asked that because when I released along with um, uh, the, when I released my report on teacher discipline, there was this big hue and cry that I was being unfair to the Nova Scotia teachers. They were so much better than, uh, you know, they were all good. Yeah. There was absolutely no problem. And the defense then was, no, we're weeding out teachers. We have our own disciplinary procedures. So we challenged them and said, well, where's your data? And so you know what they came up with? They came up with that. That's when they first came up with that, that uh, of the 4,900 
teachers or 4,500 yeah. teachers. Yeah. One had been removed this year to the next. So you know what CBC ran with? <laughs> that our report grossly overestimated or was incorrect in saying that no teachers are removed. Yeah, yeah. Well, Come on. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's not. I, that's laughable. It is, yeah. Uh, in the next few years, there'll be a high percentage of teachers retiring. <clears throat> this is a real opportunity to revitalize the system with an influx of well-trained and energetic young teachers. Can you talk a bit about the numbers of teachers likely to retire over the next five years? Well, teaching used to be more top-heavy with senior people than it is now. And I suspect, Don, that COVID-19 will have a leveling effect. I think a lot of senior teachers have taken the option of retiring. I think they're exhausted. What we call COVID fatigue has hit mm -hmm. teachers. I'm very sympathetic to what teachers have gone through. And I suspect that there's no need for a policy change because I think the simple uh, process of this pandemic wearing everyone down, I think is going to sort itself out. The other thing that's happened, of course, is fascinating, is that there are no substitute teacher uh, jobs that are vacant because so many people have been hired. 900 teachers and 400 support personnel have been hired in Nova Scotia in the last two years. And the um, supply teacher uh, pile was about 1,500. Apparently, it's down to just a few hundred, and they're not in the right subject specialties. So I, I would say it's less of a problem than it was because of the impact of uh, hiring sprees right. in recent years. Yeah, well, that, you know, that's good news for young teachers who had such difficulty getting into the system for so long. It is it, my, my understanding in Nova Scotia, at least, that the collective agreement allowed retired teachers to have priority over new teachers for substitution work. I don't know if that was actually true, but I think it was true. And uh, obviously it made it harder for those young teachers to get any kind of experience that would prepare them for full-time work. Are there any specific changes to collective agreements that you that would, in your opinion, uh, improve the quality of public education? Well, we know that no one can teach in a public school without being a member of the Nova Scotia Teachers Union in Nova Scotia. And the same is true in all of the jurisdictions. If we were to simply require that all teachers be members of a college of teaching professionals, as well as being a member of the union, we don't have to uh, ask them to leave the unions. That would be the single biggest improvement I could think of. Now, here's, here's the... Uh, and then you would have a what are called standards of professional excellence right. against which they could be um, they could be measuring themselves. I'm not looking to have major turnover, but I think it would be healthy if we did that. And I, I'm in favor of um, introducing a new bill in each of the legislatures called the Teaching Profession Act. It isn't a profession in any of the provinces. And that would be the focus of the legislation. And I think that um, there are proactive ministers of education like Dominic Cardi and others who are uh, courageous enough. This would be something worth taking on. Yeah, it's an, another excellent point. Uh, and I didn't realize that it wasn't recognized as a profession. I think that would surprise many of our listeners. 
Let's just move on to another important topic as a result of the pandemic. I, I think you'll agree that the pandemic has had a detrimental impact on education on a vast on the vast majority of students, and has created a pretty serious learning gap for most, not all, but most. It seems that private schools were better prepared and generally did a better job providing online education to the students than the public schools. Why do you think that was the case? Well, they have a pretty advantaged position. They have parents who are committed first and foremost to education and willing to pay more than anyone else. In fact, on top of their taxes, they're willing to spend all kinds of money. Most uh, private school, independent school parents work at two jobs. They're not the people you think they are. And those in the Christian schools are um, probably the most in debt because they are there for other reasons. So people choose those schools. So the students themselves understand why they're there. It's to do well and to perform well. So for example, um, this is what happened during COVID. Within 48 hours of the uh, shutdowns, all of those schools in our region that were private and independent had immediately decided they were gonna go to video conferencing and they were gonna get started as soon as possible on uh, video conference lessons, uh, synchronous learning. Now it took the school board, the school boards and school districts in the public domain three weeks to get organized. And they, they had a battle royal trying to convince their teachers that video conferencing was something that they should embrace. And instead they just gave homework, uh, uh, project work, and they deferred and delayed and, and uh, hummed and hawed, and they never really implemented video conferencing. So video conferencing was almost universal in all of the private and independent schools. Why? Because there's a collegial relationship between the teachers and the parents. And they just simply said, the parents, what do you expect? And they said, carry on. No right. need for a disruption. Do the best you can. Yeah. Not think up all these reasons you know, one of the strange things is in public education, they're so paranoid about security and uh, personal intrusions. And they don't want video in case people see what's in your home or in your room or something like that. And letting everything get in the way of teaching and learning. So I think the private schools, here's another problem. Uh, when you get into a crisis, institutions default to the lowest common denominator. Right. That's what happened. Yeah. I, I was also surprised, I am surprised actually, that there's so little public discussion about the, the learning gap that has been created over the past two school years and the lack of a plan to address that gap. It's clear that most students fell behind during the pandemic and there's a need to develop a strategy to narrow that gap uh, that was created in learning during the period. And, and in fact, you know, one of my grandsons um, who's in grade three, uh, you know, he lost a year's reading. He really did. He, you know, we're going to have to help him make up that gap ourselves, I think, because there's no plan within the system. What recommendations do you have to narrow the learning gap that was created by the pandemic, Paul? Well, in Nova Scotia, they lost 16 weeks of school uh, through disruptions. If you take not only the three-month initial period, that's four months of actual schooling. And I didn't even include the summer holidays. Some do and include that in uh, as the summer slide plus COVID slide equals a big problem. So you're absolutely right. 
your grandchild is no different than most. Um, the studies that have been conducted, mostly small scale in Edmonton, Alberta, uh, on reading, they're the best ones. They show they've lost a year uh, or more, and that every single member of the what we call the pandemic generation of children is behind in critical areas, uh, particularly literacy and mathematics. The irony is they're reading better <laughs> at the higher levels because they've freed up from the dumbed down curriculum. So parents would be handing them better books and they'd be reading above their grade level. So there's lots of reasons why we need to study this because what's happened is kids freed up from the uh, deadening effect of say uh, reading levels in secondary school English courses. They're reading more and better materials than they did because the parents are guiding them. So there's lots of reasons why education does wants to actually hide what's really happened because there are areas where students have actually improved. Um, I, getting back to your question, the um, Royal Society of Canada report released um, in August and further discussed last week um, sets uh, between three to 1.5 years in learning losses across the board. Uh, and they basically predict, and this is a direct quote, negative consequences uh, continuing to reveal themselves in coming years, end of quote. Yeah, it's a big issue. Uh, as you know, the Atlantic Institute of Market Studies, which is now part of the Fraser Institute, used to rank the schools in Atlantic Canada based on the uh, public data that was available. Do you think some form of third-party ranking of public schools should be reestablished? And if so, what type of data would be most valuable to undertake a fair assessment of an individual school's performance? Yes, indeed. I think we do need those types of independent measures of how students and schools are performing in relation to one another. And it's a serious lack. Can we go back to uh, something that I know you care about deeply? And that was the uh, merger of Ames and the Fraser Institute. I believe we've lost more than we've gained. We've lost a truly independent, um, maritime-focused uh, research institute, which was producing unique, made-in-Atlantic-Canada studies. Now what we're getting are, are Canada-wide studies, which are adapted to our region and don't exactly fit our circumstances, they don't even they don't even resonate with the public as much. So uh, put me down as someone that's um, one of those who is still um, haven't recovered from the loss of Ames. Now, yes, in answer directly to your question, we need a means to assess the relative performance of schools. And I did have a proposal that Ames was looking at, and I want to share it with you. It was my view that we should abandon ranking. Uh, the schools across the board, province to province, because they were so similar from year to year. I felt that it should be every three years you do uh, uh, rankings along that. And in between, I was very much in favor of taking a school system and doing a detailed analysis. We did one. It was the Halifax Regional School Board, and we examined how uh, students and schools performed between 2008 and 2016. It was designed to be a prototype, and we what we did was we looked at every single one of the 135 schools. We examined their uh, student results. We used a socioeconomic basis, and we evaluated how they were performing in relation to their socioeconomic status. 
And what we discovered was household income is a reasonable uh, measure to use. And there's no reason why we couldn't have done more detailed studies. It revealed a number of important things and that the most improved schools were not the ones we expected them to be, had more to do with teacher quality and uh, than anything else. It revealed that, um, yes, socioeconomic neighborhood factors are critical and still the most decisive thing. Uh, it indicated that uh, there was no monitoring whatsoever of graduation rates. It indicated that um, high school um, uh, graduation rates were going through the roof, that um, the only criteria appeared to be attendance to getting a high school diploma. There's all kinds of things that came out of that study. If only we could replicate it. And our plan was actually to go do um, uh, Prince Edward Island as a total uh, unit, uh, Fredericton and maybe St. John and do a detailed study of one of the school districts and really go into detail and see what we can do and come up with recommendations specific to that locality. I always like that uh, ranking. Uh, you know, there is a lot, you know, a lot of resistance to it from the normal uh, expected characters. Uh, however, um, uh, it, it also had a, a little bit of accountability in it to the schools to figure out why they were underperforming other schools. I, I, I liken it uh, to the McLean's ranking of universities, which people, you know, at the university level, they poo-poo, but underneath they pay attention to, and they try to figure out how they can improve their rankings, right, which hopefully improves their performance as part of that, that, that effort. So it's the same thing with, uh, with schools, I think. We're almost out of time, but I, I have a couple other quick questions, uh, Paul. Uh, what are the key lessons coming out of the pandemic for our public education system? Well, the key lessons are that whenever you hear someone say that we need to build back better, then you should view it with a fair degree of skepticism. Because the vast majority of people who use that phrase have in mind a different educational system than the one we've talked about today they are wanting to build back better means we don't want standardized assessments. We want more teacher autonomy. We want less scrutiny and we want more um, freedom to innovate and create at the school level. Um, it also means essentially that we're going to have the suspension of exams, uh, standardized exams and tests across the provinces will continue and become the norm. In other words, um, why do we need these things? We've done very well and we've come out of the pandemic and we've learned a lot of things. And if you can believe it, there are people who say this and they are actually writing this. They're saying we should actually abolish the term learning loss. Wow. We shouldn't be discussing learning loss. We should be talking about learning gains and abolish the term learning loss. Can you believe that? Those are the very people that are advocating building back better. Well, you know, I think I think parents have a big role to play here. They need to be uh, engaged, obviously, and demanding uh, better outcomes uh, for the education of their kids, for sure. I know when I had my kids in the school, I was actively involved uh, trying to make it better, and, and other other parents need to do the same. Uh, also, I just wanted to ask you, I, I know that you think business can play uh, an, a role uh, in public education. Can you just 
talk about what you mean uh, by having business more involved. I, I'm glad you asked me that because I think there's a critical role for business leaders and business people, and particularly local chambers of commerce and local um, trade associations to play in the school system. Right now, as you know, you're kept at arm's length. You're not welcome uh, in the schools. In fact, uh, you actually have a bigger problem than the most, the average citizen trying to approach that rather forbidding uh, school uh, system. There are three things I always advise business people. I would advise you to start small and at the school level and offer partnerships at small scale enough that you can see the results. Don't get invited in to make a bigger commitment. Make a small commitment and make sure that there are accountability measures. Secondly, focus on what matters. Don't listen to the educators and the superintendents. The superintendents want you to focus on secondary. Uh, they want you to give grants. They want you to support things like the learning partnership, which we could talk about in great detail if you want. I don't really think that's a great investment. Uh, and they, I would advise strongly, focus on foundational literacy and mathematics and ask to see concrete evidence that there's an improvement. And thirdly, when you're invited to be on an advisory committee in education, go in with your eyes open because you could be um, co-opted very easily. Uh, you're gonna find it's all process. You're gonna find it's mostly top down and you're going to realize eventually that there's negligible impact on the school system. It's for that reason that I think you should challenge those in charge of the school system at the school level to be better and start from the bottom up and you will see progress. But if you start at the top, you'll be tied up in knots. You'll find yourself going to committee meeting after committee meeting and meeting with everyone but those who can make a difference in the schools. Paul, that's terrific. Thanks for participating in this podcast. And, and also thanks for providing your voice to better inform the public of the challenges and solutions, solutions available to improve public education in our region, in our country. Thank you so much for the opportunity. I've enjoyed it. You've got a great series going. I'm enjoying the episodes. Thanks again, Paul. You've been listening to the latest episode of Insights on the Huddle Podcast Network. Mark Legere and Tyler McLean helped produce this episode. You can subscribe to the show by searching for Huddle Insights on podcast platforms like Apple and Spotify. And if you've enjoyed listening, please give the show a rating and a review. Don and David will be back again next week.